Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Dan Morris, the CEO and founder of MindRacer. Dan, welcome. Hey, Marcus. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your journey to get you to where you are today? Sure. I had a sales career, salesperson, VP sales, then became a CEO of service businesses, agency businesses. Some of those businesses did very well. We got to 61 on the ink list, for example, for a services business. Really good fun. Used to very fast-growing businesses. Then spun out of that and began consulting to technology companies, trained as a product manager to get the real understanding of all the different perspectives within tech. Worked with SaaS companies, helped them to turn around, double their revenue, those sorts of things. And then we've developed a fractional VP service that allows us to drop in experienced VPs of sales or revenue leaders into technology and services businesses and and help them to get their sales processes straight and and get on the path to growth. And uh, it's been a great time doing that. And we're based in New York City and working with clients across the US mostly, but some of them are in the UK. Those are thinking about crossing the pond and coming out here as well. So Always interesting projects going on over here. (laughs) Excellent. Okay, well, let's start with the million-dollar question because I'm sure many founders have fallen foul of this mistake. When you're hiring your first salesperson, what are the qualities and characteristics you should be looking for and what should you avoid like the plague? (laughs) Well, the qualities that I've seen work best is somebody who's got the genuine motivation to get there and work it out. Because battling through those challenges and having a personal internal drive to get there and do it, often something to prove are very, very motivating characteristics within that person. If you're bringing in your first salesperson, ideally you want somebody who can help to build a little bit of structure around a process that you probably haven't documented very thoroughly if you're a founder. (laughs) <laughs> That's right? the blackest a, way I've ever heard it described. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it can be a bit, a bit foggy getting into an early stage organization as a salesperson. So you need somebody who understands what that really looks like. So, in other words, probably not somebody who's come from an enormous organization that has got all the support in the world around them and drop them into the very foggy world of an early stage startup where there isn't any process and no support around them, that often goes wrong. So, you know, if you've got somebody who's got the right motivation and can tell a story around how they're going to build the collateral and make the process repeatable, gives you a chance. Most often, it's somebody who's got experience in that same sort of size of organization. We've often found that somebody who's been passed over for promotion at one of the competitors of that business has the motivation and the experience to come into your business and add a lot of value and the internal motivation to prove that they were worth that promotion and they can can shoot up to the next level and really drive your business forward. That's a a really, really interesting observation. And it raises two questions. So I'm going to make a note. So the first one is, why do those people very often get passed over for promotion? Well, if you've built an early stage team, you've probably hired a few people at the same time. And so it's always the fastest horse, right? Like who is going to show themselves to be the most likely leader in that early stage organization? Somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to come second. And, you know, the person who wins may not be the, the, the great choice in the long term because quite often they're going from being a rep to being a manager. 
And in an early stage organization, rarely is there training to help that person go from being a rep to being a manager. But if you've got two people whose career aspiration is to step up to that management level and one of them doesn't make it, then you've got that second person more more than likely looking around at their options fairly soon afterward. And so if you're a savvy founder who's looking at that and you know who your competitors are and they've recently promoted somebody to a management role, have a look in that Rolodex of LinkedIn and see who that second or third person might be because there could be some good conversations there. So that's one idea. What a fabulous piece of advice. That's very good. Two minutes in. So tell me this. That's it. We should hit pause now. That'll be... (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm going to squeeze more blood out of the stone. So what are the qualities that make for a good VP of sales in an early stage startup or a scale-up? Big question. So the people who are successful at it quickly realize that it is no longer about everybody doing things the way that they did. So especially in 2021, it's about people who've got a genuine interest in the people around them being as good and as being as confident as they can be. So having an element of being that natural coach, that natural leader, that natural great listener, they're things that are going to translate very well to being able to understand the sales team that they just took over. And if they've got those qualities in themselves, and then they're naturally going to lean on those. If you've got somebody who was actually like me, I was a, you know, a rocket of a rep. I had a lot to that I wanted to prove early in my career and I got promoted, I'd say over-promoted at the time to be VP of sales. Yeah. And I had to learn along the way that it wasn't just dragging people to do things my way. Actually, as the team got to 20 and 30 and then 40 people, the more senior reps that I was coaching began to help me turn the corner to support them better. And you know, that was 12 years ago, something like that. But when I, so now when I'm looking at what to do with a VP, the ideal qualities are those that I just mentioned. But you can help somebody who was that individual high-performing rep to do it. But if you're a founder, the advisory is going to be helping them see things from other people's perspectives, helping people see what their internal motivation is from each member of their team, and to be able to talk to them in a way that really makes it worth it for them like they would with a really good sales opportunity. Great discovery leads to excellent sales performance. And so, yeah, I'll stop there. Okay, very helpful. So in terms of finding and uh, developing that VP, if you're a founder, the VP still needs coaching, still needs development. Mm -hmm. So how do you make sure you set them up to succeed? Well, the most important thing that we see is getting to a point where you've got a written down process that other people can look at so that you're all singing from the same hymn sheet, if you like. You're all using the same definitions of what an entry and exit criteria are for each stage of your sales process. To, To have a documented example of what's really good and what's not really good. And to give some, you know, lead by example, if you're able to talk about deals, not just listen to the story of the deal, you know, like, hey, tell me about what's actually happening with that prospect. What's actually the next step going to be? Like, what do you think is actually going to happen within there? What's your strategy for this? Rather than, hey, when are you going to close this deal? If you as a founder can give the VP an example of what a really good 
pipeline discussion would look like and what a really good coaching session would look like, you're going to have a big advantage because that VP is going to have an example to model themselves from. I have to say that's a big ask though, because you know a lot of founders, they're particularly good in the technical space or they're particularly good in the creative space. They don't see themselves as sales leaders. They don't necessarily want to be sales leaders. And so don't really identify with being a sales coach. And so that's often a challenge that, you know, I can tell you what the best practice would be here. But in the real world, a lot of founders will really struggle with that particular step to provide that sort of support to their VP. And so they need to try and hire for somebody who's naturally got those criteria. So you've segued very neatly into my next question. So it's like uh, you're teeing them up and I'm whacking them off the team. Um, <laughs> I do my so best. <laughs> my, my, my next question then is if you are a new VP and you have a technical or creative founder, how do you manage up in such a way where they uh, allow you the freedom to do your job well and they value sales and it doesn't become the trouble department? Often what happens is that there is far too much trust put into that VP, (laughs) which allows them to drift further and further away from the founder until there's a point of worry, shock, inquiry from an investor. Hey, what's happening with sales? Then all of a sudden, the two ships are pulled together and and there's a loud bang. And so what I'm saying is that, that if a VP comes into a business like that, managing up means consistent opportunity to communicate what's really happening, getting ahead and explaining in detail what in enough detail, what the challenges are with team members ramping up to performance, what the requirements are in terms of the training that you're going to be delivering for them and the, and the how you're going to get them up to speed quicker. So they know that. So they've got the sound bites to understand themselves and be able to explain to the board. But also just to understand the nuances of what you're what you're bringing to the party, right? Because what will often happen if you've got a founder who's not really that interested in sales and, and wants to bring in somebody who's just the expert, they'll just leave you to it. And you need to make yourself part of that conversation regularly and make sure that they are understanding what you're doing. And you may not get the best level of support as a VP of sales from, from a founder who doesn't have that natural support. And so it's on that VP of sales to get that support from elsewhere, be it a peer group, a Slack group, a coach, or something like that, to make sure that they are sharing you know, what they would like to do with their peers so that they've got some context on how to approach that with their founder. You know, you've got to look for things in a place where you're going to actually get it. And luckily today, there's lots of opportunities to network with other sales professionals and sales leaders who may be going through the same challenges, Slack groups, peer groups, coaching groups, those sorts of things. But yeah, be consistently bringing it to that founder and making sure that they they hear what's going on, not just what the number's going to be, is one of the challenges that will be consistent if you're working with a founder who doesn't identify as somebody who really deeply understands or wants to understand sales. So that then raises the next really important question, which I think many early stage businesses fall into a bear trap around, uh, which is the lack of coordinated communication and alignment between marketing sales and operations and the critical importance of a VP uh, who is able to be the glue 
between marketing and operations and then the customer and also reporting back into the executive team. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's definitely a very live challenge. And uh, it's I think it's getting better over the years. You know, there always used to be a bit of a an even thicker brick wall between sales and marketing. <laughs> and, you know, it used to be, you know, almost one versus the other, uh, I saw in many, many organizations. And now because of the language changing and because of buyer behavior, evolving a lot there is a there's a necessity for more conversation between marketing and sales i think it starts with the definition of who your actual customer is and agreeing you know what the profile of that person looks like and if you can have that conversation with your marketing team you can also have it with the operations team on who are the best people to stick around and experience value in the longest term because, you know, and I, I learned this years ago when I looked at an organization, I was leading the, the sales department and we looked at all of the meetings that we had done, all the deals that had turned into customers and how long those customers lasted. And then looked at all the demographics around what, what those customers were. So industry, size of company, revenue, all those sorts of things. And we're able to look at them, the reasons why they left and gather all of that information to see, hey, look, here are the people who are getting the most natural value from what we put in the market right now. How about we have a conversation? So we focus everything that we're doing on delivering even more value for those people. And then if others inquire to us, come to us, then we can help them using the same framework. But let's use our resources to talk to more of those people. And I think if you're, VP, if you're a VP of sales and you're going into an organization that doesn't already have that shared language, that's going to be one of the things that you can really make a big impact in your first 90 days by really understanding who those people are who are getting the best value and really spending time with uh, the leaders of the operations team, be that customer success, account management, whoever they would be, uh, and also the marketing and, and any lead generation teams that you've got there. Because it's just going to make it a lot easier to invest the right, uh, much more efficiently your whatever budget you've got for customer acquisition and increase lifetime value if you're working with the people who are going to be the most natural fit. But also it makes it easier for you as a VP of sales to actually train your next salespeople because they have to learn less stories in order to become relevant. And so that, that's one of the biggest priorities, I think, within the first 90 days for any VP going into a business is to really get very strongly to grips with that. And if those resources like personas, like a, a marketing qualified lead definition, like a sales qualified lead definition, and what you know, what the defined stages of that process are, what's required before you hand it over to customer success, you'll see massive benefits from that for however long you're with that company. Incredibly be... insightful and very useful. I mean, it's, it's a glaring flash of the obvious, but it's something that is often overlooked. And that lack of alignment across the entire revenue operation from marketing through to lead generation, through to sales, through to customer success, through to account growth teams, professional services, day-to-day -day operations, that needs to be coordinated and fully aligned around the customer. And uh, you've touched on something else that's really interesting. What, one of the companies that I'm CRO for is a company called White Rabbit Intel. And what's been really interesting is the number of clients who've got the wrong ideal customer profile. And they're, they're trying to sell into either one that they've imagined because they think that that's who they should be selling to, or it was the right ICP three, four, five years ago, 
But the ICP changes over time and will often change based on market conditions. And uh, what we've noticed with uh, our clients where we've been able to identify the correct ICP is sales will grow exponentially. We had one client who, in the space of two and a half months, grew sales 700% by refocusing on the right ideal customer profile. And they ended up having to triple their headcount as a result just to keep up with the volume of business coming through. Now, again, you've got to keep asking yourself the question, is what we're doing still fit for purpose? And I don't think there's anywhere near enough reflection and self-critiquing that goes on in many businesses because their nose is so close to the grindstone. Your thoughts? Our core process is review, refine, roll out. And then we repeat the refine and roll out and review processes. It's just an agile process. And depending how, how early stage the organization is, affects how frequently you review, refine, and roll out. But the focus, the, that example, I, when we analyzed all of the different types of companies that we'd spoken to, had a demo with even those that we'd won and lost, we recognized that actually there were five industries and they were all above a certain size and revenue that were the ideal shape and size for us. So when we refined our actual strategy and rolled out those updates, the average order value increased 40%. The conversion rate from meeting steel increased 225%. And net margin increased 14% on the delivery side of that business. And so when you look at it, that's a services business as well. So there's, you know, extremely high margin hit. So you know, how often should they do that? Well, they should make sure that they do it to start with. Yeah. A lot of businesses just don't get around to that. And when you t- if we're talking to revenue leaders right now, people who are going to be hired or have recently been hired by a, a board or a, or a C-suite, and the demand is we need more sales now, naturally, the, the opportunity to zoom in on the people who are going to convert best is the best path. But an ownership team who's convinced that actually what they want to do is enter a whole new market instead will need to be convinced of where you should focus rather than just following the, we hired you to get into this new vertical. If that's what you've agreed and it's been assessed and that's a strategic thing, obviously that's what you're going to do. But if you're coming in as an experienced leader of revenue, you're going to assess and see what's going to get you the biggest lever to pull and focus there. And so... Most businesses don't really do that regularly. And uh, you know, the, the best revenue leaders, I think, run that process regularly and really work closely with their marketing team and the marketing operations and sales operations people who've got all of the reports and all of the CRM data, and it's all shown in a way that you can actually interpret it, then you can really make some smart decisions quickly. If that structure doesn't exist, then it's about making sure that that gets built early. We went in and worked with a SaaS company through 2020. They've been around for nine years. They recently moved to a new CRM. We went in and interviewed the sales team about how they were using the CRM and what what information was being recorded in there. And none of them were using it consistently. And so you can't really look at the data in the CRM and then make a decision because none of them are using it consistently. So if that's a problem first, well, obviously that's a higher priority to nail that down and then get a bit of consistency with what's happening and then begin to make decisions as quickly as you're able. But terrible data in, terrible results out. So again, this then comes to the the key question, 
around systems and structure and what data matters. So if you're coming in, you know, cold to a, a new role as a, a VP, who's basically a, a gun for hire, whose yeah. job it is to build uh, an effective sales operation, where do you start? <laughs> well, we have a great big list of of checkpoint items. So first of all, are these assets present? So things like an updated sales deck. Have we got a one pager? Have we got recordings of sales meetings that happened recently? Have we got a sales playbook for the stages in the CRM? Have we got XYZ? There's about 80 things on our list. So we work out first, do they exist? Then we work out, have they been drafted or even just released? Sometimes things get drafted, but they never get communicated to the team. So they theoretically exist, but people haven't seen them and they're not using them, right? And then the the best level is when people are fluent at using those tools. And you speak to everybody and they're all talking the same, they're all telling the same story, right? So, you know, we can assess how well have these things been rolled out. And anybody coming into a sales organization can do the same thing. They look at, they build a checklist of the things that they would see are essential, then interview the people that you're about to take over as their leader and ask them, hey, have you got this? Have you got that? Do you know this? Do you know that? You've got an opportunity then to work out how fluent they are using the same tools and identify what your training challenges might be. But then on the, on the customer side, of course, you're going to ask finance for a customer list. A finance will just tell you the name of the company and they'll tell you how much money they spent last year. Marketing might be able to tell you the name of the company, how much money they spent and what their role is. But what you really want to achieve is a lot more than that. So if you're a technology company, for example, what other technologies are they using? What technologies do they buy before and after yours? So you can see where you exist on the maturity timeline of that particular type of business. They're the sorts of things that are going to give you really deep insights into who your ideal customer will be and what value they're getting from your business. And then, of course, talking to those customers <laughs> is, is one of the things that I hope doesn't get overlooked too often. But talking to customers and asking them you know, what the value they're really getting from the service or product is on a day-to-day and how they're using it in a ways that they didn't think they were going to, some of the challenges that they have experienced with really getting people on board at their company, that's going to give you a whole lot of insights to refine the personas And then you can zoom out and have that conversation with your teams and really begin to share that common language of, hey, look, this is really why people buy this. This is really the value they get. Let's get towards the same page on how we communicate this. And that'll take you a long way. So this raises the perennial question around the conflict that exists typically between marketing and sales. And if you've got a fully aligned revenue operation, then marketing is speaking to customers, which again is a rarity, sadly. Customer success is brought in early in the sales conversation, and they have a an significant influence, if not even sign off, on whether you can close a piece of business. Because if you can't fulfill it, uh, you shouldn't be selling it. And because so many tech companies in particular are in a hurry to grow, they do have a a nasty habit of selling stuff they shouldn't, selling to the wrong people, or taking stuff on that's going to break them. So how can a new VP of sales bring the adult into the room 
in order to ensure that marketing is actually speaking to living, breathing human beings rather than being focused on just the data and that uh, customer success is part of the sales process and that they build everything around the customer and their outcomes? That's a very big question. And of course, with more complex solutions, there are many more stakeholders required. And, you know, of course, we missed out the the technical sales support element there, which will often come in when we're talking about an enterprise software integration and so on, because that's not customer success. That's definitely the sort of the more technical support for the sales team as well to make sure it's all scoped out and the integration's there. Is it possible that we really feasibly going to be able to solve this problem for them? That's an excellent sanity check when it's deployed well. I think the simplest way to approach all of this is to record sales calls and to to listen as well to the quarterly business reviews that that customer success are hopefully having with the team and to agree what the agendas for those meetings look like so you get some degree of consistency within the sales calls and within the quarterly business reviews so that anybody, marketing, customer success, leadership, can actually then review live examples of what customers are really saying and use those exact sound bites to be able to inform things like the communication strategy or to identify the things that get spoken about in the sales process but don't really get communicated well before customer success has to hand it over. And then to improve that bridge between sales and customer success in the handover process, but also to improve the communication between sales and marketing. So recording those meetings as a habit Obviously, letting the customers know in regions where they have to be informed about it. But generally, in a lot of places in the United States, you just record your meetings anyway, and everybody just expects it these days. There's an indication on Zoom that it's being recorded. Best practice to let them know. But then you've got those sound bites. And that enables you in a lot of ways. And one of the biggest ones, if we're talking to VPs of sales, of course, is being able to review those calls at an accelerated speed and be able to pick out areas where that rep might want to listen to it again and ask them how they think they could have approached it better and actually be able to coach them on ways in which they could see things a bit differently because you've got an asset there that's recording. And that can check a lot of those boxes in terms of marketing seeing it, customer success seeing it, operations seeing it, and so on, as as you've just discussed. So that's one of the simplest ways of doing it is the voice of the customer captured anyway because everybody's recording those calls and, and habitually checking them. I think you've touched on something really important here, which is that thanks to COVID, it's normal for people to be recording calls because we're doing it virtually. And um, if you're not recording calls and you're furiously taking notes, I think you're doing yourself and your customer a huge disservice. The beauty of recording is that you can pay greater attention to what is being said and how it's being said, and also paying attention to the gaps in terms of what's not being said. And uh, using conversational analytics, the likes of Refract and Gong and Chorus is incredibly powerful because every call can become a teachable moment. And the other really important part or output from this is that managers must be coaching what they see. And if you are not regularly reviewing calls, if you're not riding along with your salespeople, then chances are 
you're not going to be able to pick up those specific moments in the sale where the salesperson needs personalized help. And yeah. I think that's really, really important. And we, we kind of touched on it earlier, right at the beginning, in that very often it's the top producer that becomes the manager. And I think one of the other really important things that you should be doing in this, now we've got this shift in culture towards video calling and recording calls, is that the calls should be used so that the VP can coach the managers who are generally not necessarily as experienced or competent as they should be. Because in my book, a manager has five core functions. Hire the best people. If you hire the best people, 95% of your management problems disappear. Get the best out of them. That means a proper pre-onboarding, onboarding, training, coaching, and accountability. Then make sure they have the tools and resources they need, which then feeds back to what Dan said earlier about speaking to the salespeople about what they need, what the gaps are, and the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. And help them clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above. Because uh, God knows a lot of your senior management may do things like ask you for reports that, frankly, they should be pulling off and not taking you off the phones or time in front of the customer or moving boxes, another great favorite pastime for the salespeople, and managing inclusively and making sure that everybody on the team has a voice. And it's as important to listen to your people as it is to listen to the raw, unfiltered feedback you're getting from customers. So talk to me about the kind of cadence and uh, activities that a VP should be involved in, in order to ensure that everybody on the team is being heard and making a contribution above and beyond just doing their job. Yeah, okay. Um, So you you obviously covered a lot of ground there. Just a couple of things I just wanted to cover. You mentioned about um, a lot of senior management asking for reports to be run that, you know, they may be able to go and get themselves. What we observe is a lot of people ask for a very specific report, but it doesn't actually give them the data that they're looking for. (laughs) And so, you know, in in a lot of ways, you know, knowing how to ask the question to the operations team that can build that report is actually one of the things that the VP needs to operate as a translator to be able to say, okay, look, the board wants to see how much pipeline growth we've got over the next, over the past couple of quarters and what we're shooting for in the next couple of quarters. Can you show us a visual of what that looks like? And the operations team will go and capture the right information to present that, that report, for example rather than the executive just saying, hey, I wanted to see X, Y, and Z data, when actually what's that, that's what they're really looking for. So there's sometimes the VP needs to be a bit of a translator in there and to be able to understand the technology uh, so that they can have that conversation with the operations team and let them do their thing rather than trying to be too prescriptive about it. So just wanted to call that out because that happens quite a bit. We're talking about how, how VPs of sales, how revenue leaders can provide the best possible to support to their teams. Over the years, you know, frequency is at least X times per month, right? Often, depending on the size of the team, you run into capacity challenges. So, you know, if you're running a team of six or eight people, relatively easy to have a a conversation with them every week, every couple of weeks around recordings that you've listened to and, and to be able to give them some feedback. 
But what you really need to be able to monitor whether they're getting better or worse is actually a measurement system that grades them on how they're how well they're fulfilling each part of that ideal meeting structure. And so what we do is we actually have a grading system that talks about what they've done at the introduction level, how what they've done in the discovery level, you know, conclusion of the meeting was, and, and then final summary rating. And we break that down into a lot of different sections throughout the call. So as a, as a coach and leader, we've got a tool that is looking and listening to about 19 different data points within any sort of sales meeting. And then we're able to see over time, is this rep improving their performance in each of those core stages of a sales meeting? Which enables us to say, look, you know, this week we graded this and you were a four out of five. Last week, you did a five out of five here, and here's what was different about it. And it enables you to have a much better metrics-based discussion there. And so over time, if you're trying to have a conversation about the progress and maturity of your sales team with your founding team, you've then got some actual data to be able to say, here's what we're seeing. And then the correlation with how much they're closing is, you know, is a positive one, typically. So that's, that's from us, that is something that if you don't have that, even something simple that lets you measure regularly and use that same rubric for everybody is a really smart way of doing it. And also, how often do you do that? Well, it really depends on how often your sales team is, is talking to new customers. What we try and do is at least once a week per rep, we listen to a call, we put it into the grading system. And then depending how much that rep wants to be coached or wants to have conversations versus being let alone to get on with their pipeline affects how often we'll have a one-to-one. But we'll be building the data each week just because that's best practice to see how consistently they are actually delivering. So some reps, they want to be left alone. They're absolutely smashing their numbers. They're doing very well. They're doing their own thing. And occasionally, they'll ask, they'll raise their hand and say, hey, can we have a conversation about this deal? Can we, can we talk about how to move this forward? You know, in a lot of cases, they're very happy. They're delivering a lot of numbers, happy days. It's the people who are typically trying to be as good as those people who ask for a lot of coaching uh, and, and are getting better because of that. And then there's the people who don't ask and aren't doing so well. Whereas a VP, it's your responsibility to get in there and help them solve those problems uh, so that they can move up the ladder or you got to decide whether they're the right fit for the organization. And so this tool of being able to grade coaching uh, grade calls so that you can coach better is um, certainly something that we would recommend you build for your sales organization if you don't already have one. So at a high level, what are the different components of that tool? Introduction, how well they've actually started the introduction, what goes on in the discovery stage, there's a few different core questions that align with the, with the sales methodology that you've trained on them. Are they using those? Are they getting good information? Then are they actually using that information that they've gained in discovery to actually improve and enhance the conversation that they're having with that prospect? Or are they just doing the same demo to everybody? That's mm-hmm. not going to be a good grade, right? And then how well do they tie actual real-life examples of customers into what that customer has shared with uh, what that prospect has shared with them in the discovery? So a whole lot of elements around that that are custom to your sales organization. And then, you know, obviously there's a closing element or a securing the next step element to any sales conversation and grading out how well they're doing that, the way that you've trained them or the way that you've asked them to do that in your organization. They're really the core components. And then we have a final rating piece and a comments at the bottom. So we're able to timestamp things and have conversations with people and 
that that generally works very well. Uh, enables us to get in, listen to a ton of meetings in the first couple of weeks, grade it up, look at what the trend is over time, and then start having some really informed conversations. And if you're a new VP of sales going into an organization, you can do the same thing. One of the things you've got to do really quickly is establish context and credibility. And one of the best things you can do is listen to a whole lot of already recorded calls, get to understand how really people behave when they're not being observed directly, which is a very big difference than if you do an actual ride along with someone, and then have conversations with them. I've listened to X number of your meetings. Here's what I'm hearing. You're doing really, really well here. Where do you think you could improve? And then if they share with you where they think you can improve and you've got a difference in perspective, you can then begin to share the data with them about, hey, look, agree with you here. Let me support you. But here's another thing. What do you think about that? So it just empowers you to have more value more quickly. And that's why we operate it as a best practice when we parachute in a a VP to help out people really quickly. Okay. So big, difficult question. Is what passes for great in sales really fit for purpose? you elaborate a little? Yeah, received wisdom. Competitive, will to win, money motivated, those sorts of qualities. Is that what really makes for a great salesperson? There are a lot of good, positive inputs from people who have those characteristics in getting an organization quickly to spike its revenue keeping those people motivated and focused and making sure that you've got really high quality experience for the customer are the things that you've got to balance. Making sure that you're not just getting somebody who's going to throw absolutely anybody into the customer list and throw it over the wall like a hot brick to the customer success team here. Good luck with that. Like that's, that's the thing that you've got to make sure that you're controlling. But you get ahead of that with here's how an ideal customer looks to us. Here's what an ideal customer really needs. Here's the problems that we can help ideal customers to solve. And, you know, if they're not doing a discovery and and working out how we can align with that customer's real needs, then there's a big coaching opportunity for for salespeople. You definitely do want people who've got their own motivation for performing as highly as possible. But also you need to make sure that they're play in the game to make sure that the customers are getting a great experience and that customer success are able to keep them in the long term as well. So it's a tough balance because you know a lot of founders and a lot of aggressive investors just want that in- incredible spike to get them to the next funding round. But obviously, you need to keep the customers and retain them for the long term in order for the, for the revenue to really grow. So it's, it's tough in the early stages because you do definitely want to get hunters in there who are going to go and get as many new customers as they're able to. But then you need to start balancing that out with people who are more, much more balanced in terms of their uh, aggression level to be bringing in slower, larger customers with longer discovery processes. And it's definitely a unique balance for each organization, depending on what their goals have to be. But the perspective of building a business for the long term, you don't want to grow too fast and end up with a massive churn problem. And so you've got to listen carefully to, are they going to be able to play nicely with the customer success team and build out long-term relationships with people who really want to be our customers in the long term because they're getting a lot of value from us? Or are they just looking for that commission spike and then on to the next thing? So there's definitely a character balance then (laughs) if you want to build a good quality organization. So in order to build a really strong, good quality organization where 
everyone in all of the revenue operations is highly motivated, highly engaged, and you have customers who come back year after year, decade after decade, and love working with you. How would you suggest people structure their compensation plan in order to drive desirable behaviors rather than unintentionally driving undesirable behaviors? I can't comment for decade after decade. I've not necessarily been thinking about organizations that are getting customers for 20 years, right? What we're typically thinking about is is businesses who are working with customers. They're expecting them to get value for a couple of years at a time. The lifetime value is two or three years. In the software space, it might be three years, might be a little bit longer, might be a little bit less. And that's where they're typically building their models around. And so they're pressured to make sure that they're getting customers in for that period of time and then starting to slightly increase that. Is everybody always going to be aligned on that? Well, that's definitely the challenge of the revenue leader to try and make sure that those incentives evolve with the organization. How can you keep it inspiring, motivating, and interesting for each of those individuals along that path? A lot of people are motivated by career progression. How can they get themselves up to the next level and start leading other people? Hopefully, the organization grows to allow that to be fulfilled. A lot of people are motivated by how well they're they're performing against KPIs. Like, for example, have their customers got a high NPS score? Are they renewing at a good percentage and so on? So you've got to take in all those sorts of factors into a compensation plan for any organization. And, you know, I think it's an organization by organization question. I feel it's too broad to be able to say this is the ideal thing for all organizations. You've really got to look at what the objectives are and, and how to keep those people engaged on it on a regular review basis. You know, like you've got to look at if you're planning out headcount for the next couple of years, what's going to be the way that you've got your existing team and what are they going to be the motivations for them to stick around? Again, a lot of the time we're working with much earlier stage organizations where they're building initially out the sales team initially, out the customer success team. And so in a lot of ways, it's about how can we get people who are motivated to grow with the organization and, and set up their careers to, to help them to get there. So, you know, in a much more mature organization, things are a bit different. Uh, we definitely spend most of our time in that, right? When When's the right time to bring in the next person and what's the right way to structure that role? And, and that's where we spend most of our time. Okay, very interesting. So. If we then look at, certainly within tech, the technology stack has typically become very sophisticated, very complex. And as a vendor, often you are just one cog in a lot of moving parts in a big machine. So in your experience in recent years, have you seen any shift towards a need to learn how to play nicely with your competition and collaborate? I think always a lot of overlap when you are in a very competitive space and you might have a couple of key reasons why somebody would adopt your technology over your competitor's technology. But the pain of switching is often immense for the customer. And the way that we are typically working with technology companies is to have them understand who, what solutions are in place before they are 
and what solutions are in place after they are. And so, you know, along the timeline of a company growing, it's going to adopt tools that are more and more mature along with the company. And so, you know, for example, if you are just starting out, you're going to have a relatively simpler version. And as you're getting more complex, your organization is becoming more complex, it has more needs, then it's going to move to a more enterprise type tool. And so arguably, that's a competitor, right? You're going to lose a deal to the next more mature platform than you are. But actually, that customer may just trend up to need what that next platform needs. So playing nice with the people who are before and after you in the the organizational maturity often yields really great opportunities. And, you know, MindRacer, for example, we have some great partners who work with companies much larger than we do and vice versa. If they've got a company that is a much better fit for us or vice versa, we'll make an introduction to the other people because we know that's going to be the right thing for them. And I think you've got to know what swim lane you're in and you've got to know what is the before and after to your own solution in order to work really well. And here's the other part, to work really well with your partners. Because your partners are often the people who are going to be aiding with the transition from A to B, from them to you or from you to them. Uh, and are, are talking to a lot of your ideal customers all the time. And so really integrating your partners into what you're really good at, what your customers really get value at, and at what point is it the right time for them to start thinking about moving to another solution to you or from you, that's the sort of maturity with a partner solution that really makes a difference because delivering that message confidently to your partners allows you to do better co-marketing, allows you to do better events for those ideal customers and and makes things a lot simpler. So playing nice with people who come before you and come after you, great, because if you really get to understand each other, there is some lead swapping that can go on. We're making sure that customer gets the right experience and the partners are able to help you out in that way as well. That's an ideal situation. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of ownership on where you're not the ideal fit. And it definitely is an ongoing project for any organization to keep that real. I think you touched on something really important here, which is you know who your customer is not. And you absolutely have to make sure you don't pursue those far better to recommend somebody else. Even if you're desperate for the revenue, the worst thing you can do is sell to someone who doesn't need or shouldn't have your products or services. All you're doing is creating a headache downstream. And from a moral perspective, you're mis-selling. Don't think that does anyone's reputation any good. It's also very difficult to deliver and, and takes you away from your core focus, which is helping the customer that is getting the most value from you, right? So. You know, we've all seen it happen and it's a very tough thing because especially like you say, if a company really is looking to get to that next revenue number and somebody comes along, especially as an inbound or a referral that says, hey, we've got X amount of budget, we need to do this thing. And your delivery team, your operations team says, well, theoretically, we could do that. There's a very, big, very tempting dollar sign behind it and it can really, you know, it can go great 
or it can go really badly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's a very resource intensive to go and serve somebody who's just not part of your standard setup. And all the focus that we have been working with people on is how to help them get less friction in the sales process, how to help them tell stories more authentically about how they've helped people like them. Uh, you know, how to help them understand that there are people like them using their tool to solve this exact problem. I mean, that's just the sort of comfort that people have in making those investments is so much easier to communicate and easier to deliver, which generally adds up to them having a better experience. So I don't think that's news to anybody, but uh, certainly more ROI in focusing there. I think another metric that really matters, which too few organizations pay attention to, is the time to value for the customer. And if you really pay attention to that, the customers rent the outcome. And if they're not getting the outcome that they want, they're going to very quickly grumble and drop you as soon as they possibly can. And in the world of SaaS, even if you're selling a year-long program, they're just marching time to fire you and replace you. So it makes a great deal of sense to understand what the value is that they intended and measure how quickly you help your customers get there. And it will definitely help you uh, win more sales if you understand that and understand how to manage that piece of the conversation. And how to measure it. And and what is the actual time to value? Well, what is value with this product? You know, I mean, what, what is the metric that we need to get people beyond? You know, I believe I'm remembering this correctly, but back in the day, Twitter had established that when people have tweeted 35 times, they were pretty sticky. And you know, to get to the point where you'd done 35 tweets was the point where they said, okay, well, this is going to be almost like an active user. And uh, you know, if you're a SaaS company and you've sold a solution that does X, Y, or Z, how many uses of it? How often do people log in? How many automations have they set up in your tool? How many what is that key number that actually tells you that this person has become a regular user is actually getting value from your tool? Because it's certainly not the fact that they've completed your onboarding program. Mm-hmm. You know, going through the checklist of they've they've been to this training session, that training session, and session does not make them an active user of the platform, does not make them an enthusiast or an evangelist of your platform. And is is, you know. It might be a completion metric for customer success, but actually, how much value are they getting out of your tool X number of days or X number of months down the line? And if you can't define that, you can't improve it. And uh, you know, I've definitely seen that happen a lot of times with, with SaaS, where you know, getting people to sign up is an amazing thing, but then they don't look much beyond that because they're so focused on getting people to sign up. And um, you know, the organizations that do the best are the ones that really understand what makes that customer active and how they can get them to be an evangelist. And um, yeah, really having that hard conversation about what that is in the organization and reporting on it, having discussions about it is essential. Well, uh, again, this is where uh, certainly we're seeing this with Microsoft their partners uh, get paid a little bit for a win, a new logo. They get paid a lot for achieving specific consumption and adoption levels. They get paid a lot for achieving the outcome. And they get paid a lot for renewals and cross and upsells because that's indicative that the customer is getting the outcome that they intended. Mm -hmm. And they have a program called T-36 
and it's a 36-month program to maximize all of those metrics, which, again, makes a hell of a lot of sense. So it's quite a successful company, probably worth observing. Okay, so sadly, we've come to the top of the hour, Dan. Tell me this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? It's always making sure we've got the right people on the right engagements at the right time. We've got some outstanding partners uh, who come in to help with all different parts of the the engagements that we do. But it's always meeting more people, meeting more people who can really come in and add value quickly, people who can get up to speed quickly using our tools. You know, I think that's the 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 organizational challenge with any services business is always making the most out of the people that you've got, helping them be as successful as they can be, and always wanting to meet more people who want to add that sort of value to businesses. And so, yeah, I, I think that's the, the service business overall challenge that never goes away. I've personally worked with services business that have scaled up to about 400 people across three different continents. And it was always a case of making sure that we, we were talking to people who could join the organization next and trying to look after the people who were already in it. And I don't think that's different from, from most other businesses, but that's, that's definitely what MindRacer, what I spend my time focusing on is, is looking at not only are the clients happy, but also who can come in next and join the team. Two people you should definitely speak to. One is Ben Eddy, who is the CEO of Mobile Practice. And the other one is Simon Severino. And he runs a company that does sprints to help companies double their revenue within 90 days. And they've got dozens and dozens of systems and templates uh, I think it's about 275 different templates to drive this reality check and well worth having conversations with both of them. Well, Mobile practice allows you to pinpoint specific moments and then coach those asynchronously. So at a time that it's convenient for both the individual and the coach or the manager, and it can dramatically increase their skill level and their confidence level in a particular area. And the thing I particularly like about it is that it forces the individual to self-assess because on average, they'll do four or five takes before they upload it for assessment. And then when they get coaching, uh, they might do four or five more. So then it's very personalized and very precise use in their real world. Tell me about that. So it's a video platform where people would upload an example of a then you, you as, something? You as the manager can say to Bob, Bob, I observed this in that uh, recent sale. And so what I would like you to do is, and then you highlight the instructions in terms of the behaviors that they should be implementing, what the outcome is, the intended outcome, and how it will be measured. And then they record themselves, typically four or five times. They upload it. Then the coach, when it's convenient for them, can come back and give instant feed or direct feedback. And then the salesperson might then do that piece again or a manager. And uh, the other really interesting thing is you can do shadow coaching for managers. So you don't necessarily want to be doing the coaching for everybody. But if you coach managers on how they are responding to these moments, to these interventions, you can dramatically upskill them in a very short space of time. Absolutely, and then yeah. you capture that as a best practice, which can be shared across the team. It can be put into the onboarding process onboarding, yeah. and also in the playbook. 
So you end up building this asset library and the interface feels very much like WhatsApp. So it's really simple, very, very scalable. And it's not, you know, it's incredibly cheap when you're uh, dealing with uh, reasonable volumes. But for coaches, what's really interesting is for every pound that they spend on that, there's about, and they're finding they're getting about £5.18 in downstream revenue because they're then enabling them to be much stickier. So that's a really interesting uh, proposition. I happily introduce you. I, I, in fact, two days ago, my podcast with Ben came out. So if you want to, I'll tee that up. Always interested to have conversations with people who are innovating ways of helping people get better using technology. Always yeah. interested in those conversations. You can't ever stop looking. And you can't ever stop understanding what's out there. You do have to pick some solutions and, and build them in and nail them and, and build them into what you do on a day-to-day. But for me, I'm lucky that I'm so curious about what else is coming down the pipe and what else we could bring in to make you know enablement more efficient. That Absolutely. sort of a conversation is always something I'm welcome, I, I would welcome. They're the sorts of things that are, are always interesting to us. And, and who knows what we could do to partner together and help more people. Absolutely. Have you read Rod Jefferson's book, Sales Enablement 3.0? Not yet. Okay, definitely worth a read. So my next question is, what would you recommend people read, watch, listen to? You know, there's a book that I like very much. It's called Business Made Simple by Donald Miller. It came out recently. It's a 60-day program which walks through leadership, sales, marketing, execution, management, personal productivity. You know, it gives you access to a top three priorities for the day framework. And you know, as a leader in an organization, it's always good to have a quick zoom out on how you're actually approaching stuff and to remind yourself of, hey, look, here's how it works. So that's a book that I recommend. It's, it only came out a couple of months ago. There's also an audio course that goes with it. If you get the book, I believe the course is free. Definitely worth a look. Definitely worth a daily two or three minute read in the morning. And that's something that I went through recently with one of the clients. And, and that was a really good reset and refresh different things uh, with them. And always an interesting read when somebody puts it together in such a nice, easy way of looking at the whole business over 60 days. So that's, that's definitely something that um, I would recommend people check out that's quite new. Excellent. So you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Dan age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give him? Well, he was a very confident uh, salesperson, finding his way, making his own way and, and not really listening to anything else going on around him, just trying to you know, pay off the student loans and, and have fun. And I think you know, he wasn't doing much wrong. It was just a case of, you know, if I could look back now and say, start putting away some money into real estate investments. That's probably going to be a good thing to do a bit earlier on. Uh, you know, just to start checking out compounding interest a bit earlier in your life. That's always a good thing for yeah. people to think about. It's a bit early for Bitcoin recommendations when I was 23. Yeah. So well, I won't go there. Uh, but... Apple. <laughs> Apple, yeah. yeah. But th- those sorts of things. I think just take a bit of a broader perspective in um, in personal finance, and you know, salespeople, especially early in their career, tend to be high earners, and they tend to be high spenders as well. And so, you know, if you're building a, a sales career and you're starting to see fat commissions come into your into your paycheck, by all means, enjoy yourself. But you know, if I had started even earlier, it would have been even even better. And that's just one thing that I don't think they teach you in any sort of school, university, sales training program, anything like that. It's usually just about 
make money, spend money, have a great time. And I'm saying I definitely did that and I don't regret a second of it. But if I could have a word in his ear, I'd say sock away a few percent of it and start building a bit earlier. It'll just make things even easier when you start doing more interesting things later. The worst bit of advice that I ever received was from my first sales trainer, first manager. And it was always spend more than you earn so you stay hungry. Ooh, it was that a one. terrible piece of advice. Ignore that at your peril. Ignore that or it is going to be your peril. Um, and anyone who tells you that, run a mile. If you can't run, gnaw your own arm off. Right. That was terrible advice. Right. And, you know, a, a specific methodology that I learned and I think works very, very well is to put away a specific percentage of every paycheck into what you would call like a living wealthy account. So you can treat yourself to stuff if you want to go on a fancy holiday or whatever like that. And every commission or bonus, a much bigger percentage of that commission or bonus gets invested or socked away. So you can still enjoy yourself. You can still pay off your student loans. You can still do what you need to do. But you've got a regimen around every paycheck, X percent, and every commission check, X percent bigger. And then you'll be building a really solid base and you can start getting really interesting with things that pay you as well as you doing your sales job. And you know, as you, whether you're a salesperson, sales leader, really set you up in a way to be able to be able to negotiate from a different position later in your career when you know, you're able to take decisions to go and work with earlier stage companies and potentially get rewarded in higher amounts of equity instead of needing the cash income. So there's lots of opportunity you can create for yourself if you're, an, if you're a sales leader or a salesperson with that entrepreneurial drive. And yeah, if I'd known that a bit earlier, that would have been even an even stronger position. So um, yeah. Excellent. Dan, how can people get hold of you? Yeah, easy to get hold of. If you go to mindracerconsulting.com, uh, there's a lot of resources on there. There's an overview of the review, refine, rollout uh, process that we use. If you're interested in that, you can inquire. We're happy to have conversations with people or just look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, if you look on LinkedIn, my domain is Dan Morris Profile, all one word, linkedin.com, Dan Morris Profile. You'll easily find me and uh, always happy to connect with people who are wanting to make the best of themselves as, as leaders in the world of sales and growth. Excellent. Dan, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Real pleasure to be here, Marcus. Great talking to you this morning and uh, have a great day. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation useful, insightful, then please like, comment, share, and do subscribe. And if you feel the urge, then go to either Apple or Google Podcasts and leave an honest review, one, three, five stars, or anything in between. Now, if you're the owner or CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million turnover mark, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve genuine, sustainable, profitable hypergrowth, and have a highly engaged and highly productive team across all of your revenue operations, and you want clients who stick with you year after year, decade after decade, then let's schedule time for a brief chat over Zoom. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me or connect with me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.